Despite the fact that we read and write for a living, finding the next great book can be a Sisyphean task. There are thousands of new publications released each month in North America alone. That's why we love Book of the Month. It takes the guesswork out of the process. And they have an incredible track record. They discovered a gentleman in Moscow, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, and many other hits well before they caught on in popular culture. They've been doing this for a long time, since 1926, in fact. Their critically acclaimed editorial team reads hundreds of titles each month, delivering a short list of five to seven favorites before settling on the perfect one. Every concierge-selected title is well-written and full of plenty of plot and intrigue to capture your interest and attention. And ensure that you're the first to experience the must-read title of the moment by visiting bookofthemonth.com. Happy Saturday. It's September 30th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in Capri. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City, far from Capri. I just had to throw that in, Michael. I'm sorry. My dilettante ways die hard. Um, and we are two of your airmail editors that are here to talk all about the good, the bad, and the ugly out of modern life. I'd have you nowhere else but Capri, you know, and it's it's been raining for 96 hours here in New York City. So at least you, I'm happy knowing you are there with blue skies and the sun kissing your skin. So I'll live vicariously through you. Well, I'm here with a bunch of my friends from London, and I have to tell you, we were wearing winter coats last week, okay? So I don't want to say we deserve this, but until you've suffered through a winter, you will understand how important it is to start getting out and getting out early because it is long and it is a slog. Anyway, don't worry. I'll be back home soon. But in the meantime, I mean, this is the time to come, Michael. I mean, you've you've spent half of your summer in Italy, I think. But I mean, September, end of September, it's quite incredible here. The weather is amazing. There are so few tourists. So anyone who's dreaming about coming over here, highly recommend it. And this new Hotel La Palma is fantastic. Well, shoulder season is the new season, so you're taking it right where we should be. But we also have a terrific show this week filled with great guests and stories. You know that Trump is trouncing his Republican challengers. Democrats are fretting about Joe Biden's age. And this week, Peter Osnos has a look at a woman with a growing profile on the national stage that many believe is a future presidential candidate. Then, Flora Gill will join us from London, the place that you've abandoned, Ashley, for the moment, to answer the question, why do so many men think about the Roman Empire all the time? And more to the point, why has this preoccupation among men become the hottest trend on social media? And finally, from the annals of shady characters, something we love here on Morning Meeting, our colleague George Kalajarakis will share what he's learned about a woman who you might call a real housewife of the Senate. That's Nadine Menendez, the wife of Senator Robert Menendez from New Jersey. Both of them are facing some very wild corruption allegations, and George will reveal everything he's learned about her and him and why they have gold bullion in their house. My dear... Where would you like to begin today? Besides with, you know, some pasta and rosé, where would you like to begin? I mean, Michael, why don't we start with the Roman Empire? Well, you just want to begin with the Roman Empire because you're in the former Roman Empire right now. So, yeah, let's start with it. You're right, Michael. I'm here to really just deepen my understanding of history. Flora Gill is a writer at large for Airmail, based in London. Welcome, Flora. Okay, Flora, it seemed like just yesterday that everyone on the internet was obsessed with the Kardashians and Kanye West, but now no. It seems like those two have been completely usurped by the Roman Empire. What is going on? Yeah, people have become obsessed with the Roman Empire, or I think more accurately, people are amazed that so many men have been obsessed with the Roman Empire for so long. It's come about by this question that was challenged to women to ask 
their boyfriends, husbands, fathers, how often they think about the Roman Empire with the promise that they'd be surprised. And I think most people are in work because so many men particularly seem to think about the Roman Empire on a weekly, daily, hourly basis. And everyone's trying to figure out why. Well, you investigated this trend. What exactly did you discover? Yeah, there's lots of different theories. Lots of people saying that certain things set them off, you know, straight roads, sewage or sewage systems even. I mean, the Romans were responsible for a lot of great things. I think we can all agree. But I think that's necessarily fair because I don't think people are thinking, oh, Edison, every time they turn on a light bulb. I think really it's about a lot of men's desire to idolize this period of time to kind of fantasize about it and to think especially when you're sitting at your boring office job or if you're just going through some you know everyday activity thinking oh the roman empire i would thrive in that and it's understandable why women potentially don't have the same attitude when they look back on the roman empire because you know we we, we wouldn't have done so well Laura, are history professors around the world just rejoicing at this development? I mean, because this to me, it, it, it reflects a knowledge and understanding of a subject that, frankly, most people today don't even have about their own governments. Yeah, I think they're prob- probably happy, the ones that are at least involved in the Roman Empire, that people are paying so much attention. Mary Bid recently spoke. She recently got asked the question and uh, said that she thought it was men wanting to see it as this purely macho type. I did want to remind people that actually it's not always something to be idolized. There was a lot of brutality, a lot of horrific, horrific uh, actions that we shouldn't be trying to repeat. But interestingly, some people have said they think about the Roman Empire more nowadays because they think current political climates are reflecting it. There's a lot of people who seem to want to be emperors. I'm just being quiet here. Yeah, Michael, how often do you think about the Roman (laughs) Empire? You're staying very quiet. I love that you referenced the great line from the Monty Python sketch about the Romans, which I'll I'll leave it up to you because I think that sort of sums up of why people think about it. It's responsible for what did the Roman empires ever do for us? Yeah. Right. Where where he says, apart from medicine, irrigation, health, roads, cheese, education, baths, and the Circus Maximus, not much. You also come around in the end of your story to, uh, okay, if so many men are obsessed with the Roman Empire or think about it, and I admit to thinking about it at least probably once a week, as I said to Ashley, is there an equivalent for women? Yeah, lots of people have been talking about the various equivalents. Some people have said the Tudors. I think I think I think about the Tudors and the Six Wives quite a lot, probably more than might be normal. Or Helen Keller is another one that I think thought about quite a lot. I mean, right now, probably everyone's thinking about Taylor Swift and his NFL, I don't even know his name, <laughs> boyfriend. I think while men might look back and idolise, often women think about times when they can empathise. So I think lots of people think about like times which were horrible for women almost, like the witch trials or, you know, every woman I know is listening to a murder podcast. But yeah, the, the version that women think about has has yet to be agreed on. Flora, do you think this is part of some broader trend of, we used to just be nostalgic for the past, like, you know, in my generation, it was the 70s. For some, it was the 90s. Is this just an extension of that nostalgia as the world becomes increasingly impossible to understand? I think that's a great theory. People like looking back, like being nostalgic. I will say there's definitely a case of whenever someone thinks about the Roman Empire a lot, that's the video that's going to go viral. And so I think there's a, that not necessarily every man is thinking about the Roman Empire all the time, but I think everyone has something that they look back on and compare themselves to and think, how would I have feigned in in that period of history? No one when asked, when would you go back to with a time machine says, no one, I stay where I am. Everyone's curious. Everyone wants to go back and think about something. I've recently been uh, reading the Elon Musk book biography of Walter Isaacson, and it's fascinating that even in there, you get a, I'm saying you get a reference because Musk cites a line 
from probably, you know, Gen Z and Gen X favorite film about the Roman Empire, which is Gladiator. That movie is their Ben-Hur or their Spartacus. And in the book, when Musk reflects about how he's so edgy in public and he's always creating this drama in public, he quotes his favorite line from Gladiator, which is, quote, are you entertained? Is that not why you are here? Every generation gets this Roman film that sort of like makes them think, wow, that was pretty cool back then. I love that there are so many parts of the Roman Empire. It, it, it birthed an effect, but I can't remember what the name is it, of, of it for, but there are things that they couldn't put in the film Gladiator because they felt too unrealistic. So like advertising was an example. There used to be adverts, you know, painted up on it during the Roman Empire, but they couldn't put that in the film Gladiator because people would have looked at it and thought it looked too modern. There's definitely a certain aesthetic that we like with it and we think of it as separate from, from the complications of, of now. All right. Well, Flora, this is a fascinating trend. Thank you for looking into it and trying to make sense of it for us. We hope to speak to you again soon about something other than togas. <laughs> Any time. Hopefully we'll all have moved on by then. Michael, have you picked up a new hobby following that conversation? No, but I would admit to thinking about the Roman Empire quite often. What are you talking about? In what context? Like when you're traveling in Italy and you're driving through through Rome and remarking how, on how beautiful the Colosseum is? Like how often is this coming up in daily life? Not daily life, but at least once a week. Guilty. You and I are different and that's okay. Where are we going next? Are we going to bring Peter Osnos on here to make sense of politics for us? Yeah, I like this story. Peter Osnos has a great story out of Michigan of all places this week. What's it like a day in the life of Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan? I don't know. You don't know, but Peter Osnos certainly does, and he's here to tell us all about it. Peter is a journalist and the founder of Public Affairs. He's the author of several books, including most recently, Would You Believe the Helsinki Accords Changed the World? He also writes a Substack column called Peter Osnos Platform. Welcome, Peter. Hi. Peter, we've been talking a lot about the Democratic bench or lack thereof. You have an interesting story on Gretchen Whitmer. Where does she find herself right now? My, I would say my single word description of Gretchen Whitmer is formidable, which is a sort of 360 degree description. Her presence, when she's in a room, people look at her. Her political record so far in uh, Michigan is extraordinary. She came in, she's got a top Three jobs are all Democrats. The legislature for the first time in 40 years is Democratic. The thing is that she has done that by bootstraps in a traditional way. What she says is that every time somebody said she couldn't, she did. Now, what that means about running for president, she's vice chair, I think it's called, of the Biden campaign. So you don't go to her now and say, tell me all about your presidential ambitions. It's just not something she wants to talk about. But I don't think there's anybody who doesn't believe that 2028, conceivably 2024, things change. But 2028, she's definitely a comer. At least that's what everybody seems to feel. And I think she knows it. She doesn't wear it as a badge, but I think she knows it. Peter, Gretchen is 52 years old. I think, you know, at some point in time, we might not have considered her to be among the next generation superstars of the Democratic Party. And yet she feels so much younger at the risk of sounding ageist. How does that position her? Well, that's her presence. As I said, when you're with her, you can't avoid coming after her presence. I said in the piece that I did for for you that I had to finally confront the fact that she is glamorous. And this, the notion that she somehow looks like a 40s movie star. There's an element of that. And no question in today's politics, how you present is a big issue. And she presents extremely well. She is 52. She is raising kids. She, as a husband, is a 
dentist, I think. She's got a full life. And my impression of her, as I said, trying to get a single 360 on her, is that she's formidable, that she has the political skills, personal skills, and my guess is the ambition to be the next Democratic Party candidate for president. It's not 2024, 2028. One big thing that needs to be done is she needs to get some foreign policy experience. So if, in, you know, she's term limited. So 2027, she's done. And she'll have a, a you know, time. The best thing for her would be to spend some time traveling and accrue some foreign policy experience. Because as we all know, when you get in the Oval Office, you're, you're dealing with the world. Peter, you, you, you saw her at a campaign, or you saw her at an appearance in Michigan. I saw her this summer in Michigan, yeah. She's in a swing state, but how is she received on the ground? And what are her poll numbers like in Michigan? The really impressive thing, remember that I'm not a you know Michigan-based political reporter. My family has been in uh, a summer resident for decades and decades. And I was there watching, listening, and appreciating the fact that she just has a grip on the party for sure. And the Republicans have been a complete mess. 16 of them were indicted as, as phony electors. They have no money. Literally, there was a physical alter- altercation at some GOP meeting. They're a mess. And by comparison, the state Democratic Party is in good shape. There's Whitmer at the top, Secretary of State and Attorney General are both women, the lieutenant governor is from uh, Detroit. The speaker of the House, Joe Tate, you would not want to take on a, a piece of an ex-MSU and NFL football player, a two-time Marine in Afghanistan, and he's speaker of the House. In other words, when you see the array of what the Democrats now have in Michigan, which is a, you know, a state with an enormously diverse, you know, when you go from Detroit to the U.P., and from the West, which is, you know, really a Chicago South Bend suburb to the East, you really got a very diverse state. And she seems to have a grip on the various component parts of the state. Because I, you know, look at this thing in the way we all do it, you know, always looking for the what I call the butt clause. But if this happens or that happens, look, there's no question that at some point, if she is, in fact, a serious candidate, the way the system works is the minute somebody says they're a candidate for president, uh, people say, well, she probably doesn't deserve it. So she could end up being, you know, raked over the coals for one thing or another. But what I've seen and read and heard, you know, 17 national profiles of her in the last year, all of them on the whole, you know, as far as I know, really positive. She's a formidable character at a time when I think the Democratic Party bench needs formidable characters. It's a better bench than most people understand. But, you know, people will say, oh, you know, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, he's a little too slick. Or Gina Centrello, the former governor of Rhode Island, who is the Commerce Secretary and doing a hell of a good job. She's too short. I mean, there's there's a terrible tendency to take everybody apart. And the result, if you take everybody apart, is you get the kind of a disaster that we had in 2016 in which a former secretary of the state, first lady, senator from New York, was beaten by the guy called Donald Trump, who's now got 91 felony charges against him. So I think we have to be very careful here. Let's give Gretchen Whitmer the space and time that she needs to continue to evolve as the kind of political 
person of the 21st century that she has proven to be. The combination of political skill, you know, striking presence, and self-confidence. I believe she has it. I always ask people who really gone to amazing places from where they started, you know, when did you know? And she said, well, every time I wanted to do something, people say, well, maybe she shouldn't or couldn't. And she did anyway. And that's where she got to today. Well, Peter, when you say that the situation is not as dire as people know, who else you have your eye on? Who else do you think is a talent worth watching? Look, the current situation, which has Biden versus Trump in 2024, strikes me as inconceivable. It's a year away, more than a year away. And the events don't stand still. We've got all the primaries. We've got the fact that these are gentlemen of a certain age and stage. And, it, you know, it's, it's a long process. So let's say I'm right that it won't be Trump-Biden in uh, November. I don't know how that will come about. I don't think anybody does, and I don't think anybody who's got a prediction should be heard, listened to. If it were to come to that, I would list Newsom for sure, Gina Centrello as a vice president. I, 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 again, I've done the same thing with her as I did with Whitmer. I went up and spent a day with her just to see who she, what she was like when she was governor. She's clearly impressive. She's done a very good job as Secretary of Commerce. Pete Buttigieg... You know, is the country ready for that? I don't know. But he's also an extraordinarily formidable political figure. And then there's Whitner. And then there are other people whose names I can't even tell you. I always like to say that in January 1975, Jimmy Carter, the former governor of Georgia, announced he was running for president. And the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's headline was Jimmy Who? And he was the next president of the United States. Barack Obama in 2006... Certainly, he had become a national figure because he had made a very impressive speech and wrote a wonderful memoir. But in 2006, he was just a beginner, and in 2008, he was the president. Our society has a capacity when it needs to, to, pre to produce a person who can handle the job. So I just think we need to be much more open to the unexpected over the next year. Remember, Biden was fifth in Iowa in 2020. And he's the president and had an extraordinarily good run. I'm just saying is that the conventional wisdom narrows the focus to an extent that I think it makes it really impossible for us to see clearly what's really good. And my judgment, having, as I said, gone to see Whitmer, listened to her, met her, talked to people about her in the state, watched what she's been doing, I come away enormously impressed with a politician who has the skills and the presence and the ambition to make it. And we, those of us who care about this stuff, should let that happen rather than maybe look for excuses that why it shouldn't. Well, Peter, it's going to be an interesting year, and I certainly hope we can talk to you about it more as it unfolds. Absolutely. Thanks. This is fun. Despite the fact that we read and write for a living, finding the next great book can be a Sisyphean task. There are thousands of new publications released each month in North America alone. That's why we love Book of the Month. It takes the guesswork out of the process. And they have an incredible track record. They discovered A Gentleman in Moscow, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, and many other hits well before they caught on in popular culture. They've been doing this for a long time, since 1926, in fact. Their critically acclaimed editorial team reads hundreds of titles each month, delivering a short list of five to seven favorites before settling on the perfect one. Every concierge selected title is well-written and full of plenty of plot and intrigue to capture your interest and attention. And ensure that you're the first to experience the must-read title of the moment by visiting bookofthemonth.com. 
Michael, I think we've got reason, reasons to hope maybe that that Democratic bench that we thought proved so elusive, it might not be as bad as we thought. What's amazing when you find someone 30 years younger than the two people running for president, how they suddenly look, you know, a little more interesting. You're sounding very ageist here. <laughs> I'm not ageist. I'm looking for someone age appropriate. That's all. Okay. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we'll save that one for after the show. Well, Michael, you know, it wouldn't be an episode of Morning Meeting if we didn't have at least some discussion of a grifter. And oh, we have a new favorite one. Her name is Nadine Menendez. And our colleague, George Kalajarakis, a writer at large for Airmail, is here to tell us all about this fabulous charlatan. Welcome, George. Hello. Nice to see you or hear you. <laughs> it's been a big week in politics. We've had Bob Menendez and his wife, Nadine, hitting the courtroom. In short, what is going on with the senator from New Jersey? Well, it seems like he's in a lot of trouble. We should add the word alleged or allegedly before everything we say, probably, but he's been indicted. It's his second indictment. The government is charging that he has, with the help of his wife and a few other associates, set up a grifting operation, a real quid pro quo thing, where um, he was rewarded with things like gold bullion and lots and lots of cash and a Mercedes in exchange for access for the government of Egypt. And, you know, all of this is needs to be proven in court, but it, it looks pretty damning, actually. OK, George, I'm sorry. Did you say gold bullion? Yes. It's always nice to be able to do a story where you get to use words like that. And corruption and greed can be pretty boring. But this story was great because you have gold bullion, you have meetings in IHOPs and parking lots. There are wonderful texts. You make our dreams come true. Things. It's very. It's not a good idea for people, as as his wife Nadine Menendez did, to to send texts thanking people for delivering cars to them. It tends to come back and haunt you. It seems this had some some great elements. There's also even a YouTube clip of him proposing to her in song. I don't know if that's still up, but I don't recommend watching it particularly. But it's nice to know it's there. It's not just any song, George. It's a song from uh, The Greatest Showman called Never Enough. And his, his voice is bad. And it takes place where? In front of the Taj Mahal. Well, of course it would. <laughs> okay, wait, but George, George, I mean, clearly we've two extremely unusual and, and extremely compromised people found each other and found love. How exactly did these two meet? <laughs> well, the story they've given to the press, I think to the Times years ago, was they met at an IHOP and she... Didn't know he was a senator, she said, but she found him interesting and very, very hot. And that's another great thing about the piece where you have, I mean, calling someone hot, fine. It's, you know, it's up to the person, but uh, very, very hot was the really nice touch, I thought. And, you know, then they traveled the world after that. You know, I should add that they've pled not guilty. What, what else are they going to do? George, you're so kind to them. Allegedly, getting your plea in there. It's so, you're so sensitive. I know. I mean, when the, if these texts are real, all is great. I'm so excited to get a car next week. <laughs> I mean, here's one more wonderful text from Nadine. Anytime you need anything, you have my number, she wrote to an Egyptian official, and we will make everything happen. Now, that could refer to anything. So I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. But one other thing that's really interesting, Menendez, Senator Menendez has been indicted before, and that case ended in a hung jury, and he, he got off. Indicted for bribery. This is in 2015. And if I remember correctly, the alleged uh, setup for this new operation began almost immediately after he got off the hook for that. So why do people do this? I mean, hubris comes to mind, but it's like, well, they didn't get me. So 
I'll try it again. George, there have been a lot of calls for Menendez to resign. So far, he's not taking the bait. Does he have any supporters in his corner? I think he does have some, it seems. I think, you know, he's in many ways, I guess, been an effective senator from New Jersey. So locally, he probably still has some support. But and he also has support, it seems, among Republicans who, who are not opposed in some way to the idea that we get used to the notion of having a, an indicted and perhaps eventually convicted criminal serving in office. They probably have someone in mind. So I think some Republicans have been more reticent than Democrats to call for his resignation. You can make of that what you will. George, when these two people came together, was it a match of equals? Is she the brains behind this thing? <laughs> Is he the useful idiot or what's your sense of it? From from what I've read, Michael, it seems like this was a beautiful confluence. You know, her background, there isn't much known. There's probably going to be a lot more coming out. We've been able to say in our story, based on what we've picked up with other reporting, is she was born in Beirut and might have had a, you know, fairly well-off upbringing, but certainly... Uh, and, and was very educated when she came to, she has a master's from NYU and everything and speaks languages. And, but then it seems to fell on hard times after her divorce where she had to raise her kids and all that and was dependent on alimony and so forth. Maybe it is an equal partnership. I mean, who, I mean, maybe it'll all come out in the trial. Certainly he, because of the earlier bribery accusation, he seems to be amenable to uh, this sort of thing. So who's to say? It's just a coincidence, George. So many things are just coincidences. You're right, Michael. Well, George, if there's something that gives me hope for a more entertaining future, it's that we're going to have more Nadine Menendez to talk about very soon. Yeah, I don't know when what the timetable for the uh, trial is or anything, but I'm sure there's going to be more stuff coming out and these kinds of cases can be boring, but, but th- th- this is a very entertaining case so far and which is not to say that you know crime is funny and should should be taken seriously kids don't go in for this you know it's all very serious and tragic in so many ways there's some fun to be had when ihops and bullion are involved and emojis lots of emojis in the text that's always good too at least they kept their sense of humor well george thank you so much for this great story and for speaking with us about it nice to talk to you both take care I know it's the weekend, and I know you have something to recommend to us. I do. I have two recommendations. Uh, The first is actually uh, a book this week that is reviewed by our colleague, Nathan King. It's called Lou Reed, the King of New York by Will Hermes. And look, Reed's been dead for 10 years now, but this book traces the singer's complicated waltz from middle-class Long Island boy to downtown bohemian icon and ultimately the rock god that we all know him as, as... Nathan notes in his review, it reminds us that even before Bowie and Patti Smith and so many other people would follow in his footstep, Reed had already been and done that with the Velvet Underground. You've got other people appearing, his mentor Andy Warhol, his teacher Delmore Schwartz. But I love this book because for in a small way, when it's autumn in New York, it's always great to tuck into a good book that reminds you why this city is this city and the people who made it. And this is one to enjoy. It's called Lou Reed, The King of New York by Will Hermes. And second, if you're looking for a lovely 40-minute film rather than an eight-part limited series or a three-hour blockbuster, 
Wes Anderson has what you need. It's called The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. It's based on a short story by Roald Dahl about a wealthy gambler who learns a secret meditation technique that allows him to win big. And Anderson's made it into a little fun film with Benedict Cumberbatch in the lead and Ray Fiennes as Roald Dahl. And you can see it on Netflix now. And you, Ashley, what have you got? Do you remember the hot priest from Fleabag? Of course. Okay, well, he is back in a major way in the West End, in fact. Andrew Scott stars in a new version of Chekhov's Uncle Vanya, which is, of course, a marvelous and timeless play. Simon Stephen has dreamed up an incredibly different and exciting new version of this. It's a one-man show at the Duke of York Theatre in London, and it's uh, directed by Sam Yates, and Andrew Scott is, in short, a marvel. It opened last week. I would say um, go see it immediately. Difficult to get tickets, although I'm sure the run will be extended. Right now, it's only running through October 21st, but if you are in London, heading to London, thinking about coming to London, this is on the list. Andrew Scott's Vanya after Anton Chekhov, starring Andrew Scott. Sounds fantastic. Well, on that note, we wish you all a wonderful weekend. Michael, will you please read us out? Yes, just uh, be sure and order me a spaghetti olive angole for tonight, and I'll be down there in a minute. And we'd also like to thank our sponsor this week, Book of the Month Club. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Keep Monster by the Buddy Collect Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.